and thank you for sticking around for this uh, this discussion. Hope everyone's kind of uh, had time to recollect their thoughts. We're here at the Garden Cinema. Uh, give a bit of context after a screening of The Shining as part of our Jack Nicholson season. So, Roger, you're telling us that what we've just watched is the UK version of The Shining because there is a longer. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's worth worth throwing this question open to you and just thinking about this. When it was released in America, uh, the reaction was so bad, uh, so relentlessly negative, that when it was released three months, four months later in the UK, Kubrick cut 25 minutes of it in order to make uh, a shorter, quicker film. Um, so what you've got in the in, in the guide, I was expecting the US version because it says 142 minutes, which is the US length. But what you've just watched is under two hours. Uh, and he obviously was was really kind of um, worried about the, the, the audience reaction. And again, it's really striking that um, the reviews at the time just say, what a disaster. We've waited five years for Kubrick to produce something after Barry Lyndon. This is terrible. This is absolutely embarrassingly awful. He doesn't understand genre. Totally disastrous at, at getting a horror film at all. You can't scare people in in shadowless rooms and corridors. Completely pointless. You know, you you, you failed utterly. Uh, and so that's the first reaction. It always really intrigues me because I think when it was re-released finally uh, with the US version in 2013, so it's 10 years, it's only 10 years in this country we've been allowed to see a longer version. All the reviews were, this is one of the most important films, uh, not just of genre, but of cinema history. Uh, and it just gets better every year and more and more terrifying every year. So it's, it's, it's worth buried that in mind that at the time it just did not work and I wonder why it didn't work or what whether you feel there's something in there that's still not working is there something here that's quite alienating about it it's worth having that discussion I think about what it is that frightens us about that film if it does well I have two questions about that the first one was can you tell us in a fairly comprehensive way what's missing in this film what did he cut out? Yeah, so that's good. it's a good question. So so early on, remember there's a section called The Interview. Uh, and what we get is um, Jack having an interview with the splendidly um, bewigged uh, general manager. Uh, and he's telling him the story about Grady and, uh, uh, and, and getting very worried. And I always really like watching the other guy in the room. Uh, he had quite a big part. And it's as if he knows he's going to be cut almost entirely because he only says one word in this film and it's just... Right. It's really crossed because <laughs> he knows, I think, he's going to be cut. Um, so what you get in parallel at the same time is down in the um, uh, Sidewinder, the, the, the village, uh, Shelley Duval is talking to a child psychiatrist uh, about Danny. And she tells the story right at the beginning of the film that Jack is an alcoholic, that he needs to escape from drink, essentially. Uh, he broke Danny's arm. And we know this three quarters of the way through the film because you get that amazing um, discussion with uh, Joe Turkle, the the, um, the barman. Um, but if you know that at the beginning, this is a totally different film. And what, what um, uh, uh, Kubrick has done, I think, is really amp up the mythic register. So this is all about the Minotaur in the, in the labyrinth. 
uh, that Theseus, the young boy, must must outsmart and kill. Uh, it's got lots and lots of res- references and resonances to fairy tales, Hansel and Gretel, I Need to Leave, lots of um, crumbs through the kitchen, uh, or, you know, uh, 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 Little Pigs, Little Pigs, all of those sorts of things. So he, re- he amps that up and it becomes much more mythic and much more kind of resonant. And he completely cuts the end. Actually, he does a both versions of this, which is when you see the general manager again saying to Wendy, who's been rescued and has finally made it down, we can't find Jack's body. So that's a sense of, of, of it ending on a different kind of enigma, actually. So, so, and there are lots of choices that he makes in the second half of the film, which I think are really good ones, because the, the, the imagery that Wendy sees around the party is really bad in the long version. I mean, lots and lots of skeletons with cobwebs, and you just think, come on, this is awful. And do all the decisions to cut that out is really good decisions, I think. So there's, it's quite a long extended version of that when she finally shines as well. This is all about gaining your ability to shine in the Overlook. Um, it's very overextended and quite cliched and quite hoary. And I sort of old kind of uh, old dark house cliches and I think he's made good decisions about that at the end. What would you say that the the missing scenes for it would you say are they from the book are they does is this version closer to the the original Stephen King novel right or not right and you might well know this story it's a good question because Stephen King hated this film he absolutely hated it with a passion uh, and he wrote um, his his book Dance Macabre in 1981, which is sort of his his favourite hits of the Gothic. Um, pages and pages of diatribe against Kubrick. His his book ends in fire. Uh, so you see her uh, see Wendy checking the uh, boiler down in the basement. They keep talking about going to the basement, but they never actually go until that scene. But that's because unless they damp down the boiler, the place will blow up, and they've forgotten. That's the key thing is that both parents have forgotten. So they so the hotel explodes in fire. And and King says, of course, what Kubrick does is ice, because he's heartless, inhuman, uh, and he doesn't understand my book at all. Um, and if you are really dedicated, I really strongly recommend you don't do this. But King was so annoyed that he made a five-hour TV movie version of this from his own script, which he sent to Kubrick, which Kubrick threw out of the window. And it is terrible, absolutely awful. Uh, please don't go and see it uh, at any point. You can see it. You can get hold of it uh, on DVD like everything else and, uh, and also on YouTube. But you know, don't, <laughs> don't go there. Um, well... My, my second question was actually about horror. So were the reviews at the time, um, the dismissive reviews, the negative reviews, were they taking issue with the fact that, the, in fact, the film was so removed from the book uh, because the book is, in fact, a horror story and, and they considered the movie not to be a horror film? Yeah, I think, I think so. It's, it's a really complicated um, scene in 1977 to 80 when he's making this film. Uh, and there are lots of different kind of strands of horror film, but you've got to bear in mind that it's a, it's it's been an absolutely low, minor trash culture that that is not acceptable at all to Hollywood until Rosemary's Baby in 1968 and The Exorcist, particularly made by Warner Brothers, the same um, um, studio, 
1974, and suddenly you can make money out of this stuff, and suddenly it becomes a respectable kind of mode uh, for people to experiment with. So Kubrick, the great auteur, the great kind of you know figure who uh, this strange man who never leaves Elstree, west of London. Uh, none of that, all of that is on sound stages. He 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 famously never left the country. Got increasingly obsessive. Um, all of that is is a kind of high art version of horror, and if you're a horror aficionado, um, the thing that you most hate are people kind of stumbling in and doing quality horror. Um, so uh, it depends how you feel about this, but some people really hate Midsummer, for example, because it's it's a mainstream studio adaptation which knows nothing about genre. And you know how dare you, you know, tread on our on our genre. So there's a there's a kind of um, subcultural thing, and obviously Stephen King is very interested in subculture. What he loved in 1980 was not this, but Friday the Thirteenth, which came out the same year, and also The Evil Dead, which came out the following year. That's micro budget, no um, no holds barred, completely kind of outre, bad taste. Uh, very funny stuff. This has no sense of humour at any point, I don't think. Yeah, no, no, that's a good point. So when you say, sorry, when you say Midsummer, do you mean the... Uh... Ariatta film. Yeah, 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 yeah I'm yeah. surprised because I thought oh, he's no. considered a horror filmmaker. <laughs> I mean, Her- Hereditary is... Yeah, Hereditary is also a terrible film. Of... Yeah, Hereditary is also a terrible film, according to... According to, to yeah. horror fans. Yeah, according to horror fans. I'm a horror fan. I yeah, so, so this <laughs> kind of, this sort of sense of um, what's sometimes called quality horror, or the, you know, the kind of high, high level of this, uh, is sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're very dedicated to, you know, if you're someone who goes to Fright Fest for five days solid uh, in London every bank holiday August, uh, the most frightening thing, incidentally, is the fifth day. The people who've been in there for five days, very frightening. Um, but you know that kind of crowd um, uh, want to see something that is rare. Um, you know, trash culture outside studio systems, not capitalized. You know that sort of stuff. They're looking for the for the subcultural kind of cachet, and that really isn't coming from massive studio kind of um, backing of Kubrick. Um, I mean, I am old enough to remember this coming out in 1980. So I was 13 at the time. No way I could see this film, but but the posters were absolutely everywhere. It was completely saturated. And my only relationship with this film was through stills that you could kind of get in the middle of um, the the tie-in novel. Magazines. Yeah, oh, yeah magazines, yeah. but also t- tie-in novel. So, so that image of here's Johnny as he peers through the kind of broken door. Uh, and Shelley Duvall holding the knife, looking absolutely inhuman in this really kind of weird way. Those were the absolutely only relationship I had with this film for about you know another four years before I could creep in and see it, see an X film. So this sort of sense of scarcity uh, about it and mystery about it was really important. At the time. Well, I have a, a quick question before I let's check the time. I don't want everyone to be here till very late but um, given it was the two hour version not the two hour <laughs> yeah, time. Time. <laughs> yeah. um, I wanted to ask you now um, well how how did the reviews change over time how has it been um, I guess reappropriated by mm. horror aficionados or yeah so I, I think that, that's, that, that's a really good question and I think I think what people were looking at and this is uh, again this is quite difficult for us to get at I think from now what what you're seeing is something that you have never ever seen before in cinema. 
And that's because this is about the third film that uses the Steadicam for the, fir for the first time, right? So the Steadicam is, the, is, this, is this rig that you put on your body that, that irons out any bump at all. So there's no longer a need for a dolly along the floor where you have to build your, so your camera can be smoothly and you don't have judgery handheld stuff anymore. What you have is this device, and the person who invented it was brought in by Kubrick. So you see at the end, thanks to Garrett Brown. Garrett Brown is the inventor of the Steadicam, uh, and he came over to advise Kubrick on how to use it, and he stayed the whole year. So he, he was the one who was he did all the Steadicam footage. But what Kubrick did brilliantly, he was always interested in new technology in a quite boring way, but he said... I see what you're doing. I see what's happened in Rocky. So that's the first film to use Steadicam. Um, what happens if you turn the rig upside down and you leave it an inch above the ground? And that's what's following Danny all the way through the um, um, all of those through those labyrinthine corridors that don't work. Actually, people conspiracy theorists get very obsessed about drawing out what, what's what's he secretly spelling out. It's worth knowing about the conspiracy theories related to this film. Is it secretly about the gold standard and Woodrow Wilson? Is it secretly about the Holocaust? Is it secretly about uh, American Indian genocide? You know, that sort of stuff. Um, there's loads of stuff out there on YouTube if you want to get into that. <laughs> um, so, so I think we took a while to understand that, that there's, some, there's a whole new way of looking that's happening in this film, which is terrifying, I think. And if you, if you watch any horror film or any stuff on Netflix uh, at the moment, any horror film uses the corridor excessively exactly like this film because it, it, it gave a new grammar to what what is frightening. You can do it in a, in a bright, brash hotel with a million watts of lights outside no shadows at all uh, and yet it can still be terrifying you don't have to rely on shadow and light anymore. Uh, there's, there's something new about it and I think we now understand how innovative it was. So sometimes when you see films for the first time, you just think, I, and they've done something new for the first time, you just think, I have no idea what I just saw. I don't know what that was. Uh, and, and you have to kind of go back and see it again. So I think there's, there's a kind of sense of an understanding of that grammar, that, that this is why Kubrick was, was, was the giant he was, is that he was just obsessed with new forms of, of, of camera technology. Uh, and he put people through absolutely grim um, uh, uh, endurance tests uh, in order to get those kind of shots. So, I mean, you might know that, that some of these shots took 96 takes. Uh, and particularly the shot, the poor boy <laughs> um, having a conversation with the cook, 96 takes. Uh, and, and Scatman Crothers was, was in his 70s at that point, and, you know, he had a young boy. He did not care about their... <laughs> about their um, uh, you know, ability to endure this sort of stuff, but the steady cam operator had to because it's a sorry, this is boring. Wide, wide lens, uh, wide sort of wide field, but really shallow focus. So if you've got if you've got your um, if you've got it on the person, mm -hmm. it goes into distortion really quickly unless you stay at the same distance. Right? So Garrett Brown had to run backwards, following Danny. Or, or in front of Danny through the maze at the end, over and over again. As so if he got, if he, so he stays in focus. If he got too far away, he had to t cut, do it again. 
so so he just did that for days and days and days while while they were trying to get that perfect shot uh and it is really really weird and compulsive thing about Kubi that he that he did that and it um, took a year to film it took a year to film yeah and i think you know there's something about a, a kind of me too element to this as well now because Shelley Duvall's performance there is both on screen and off screen. So they were horrible to her, deliberately. Jack Nicholson and Kubrick constantly bullied her, constantly pushed her to say her, her work wasn't good enough in order to leave her in that utterly vulnerable state. And it's quite often thought that she pulled back from acting for quite a long time after that, became a producer, actually. It wasn't It's not a sob story. She became a very successful producer, very interested in fairy tales, did loads of TV, uh, but you'll notice that she doesn't act very much after that or after the 70s. And I think it's Kubrick, basically, completely traumatised her quite deliberately to get a good performance out of her. So her terror is is kind of genuine. Yeah, there's not been much written about... I mean, I've read interviews with her where she she, she openly says that she cried for days on end. Um, somehow it's not been... The film hasn't been subject to criticism as much as I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Just in, in terms of that, I'm yeah, sure. it's true, and it's all you find this on YouTube as well. But um, Kubrick's daughter Vivian actually made a making of film, so this is the only footage we have behind the scenes of any Kubrick production, and that's really worth watching because it's really open. You can see exactly what they're doing, and even Jack Nicholson talking about what he's doing, but Nicholson himself. Did had no idea what performance was being filmed. So uh, these 96 takes, you go, make it higher, go higher, go more emotional, go less emotional, go less emotional. And, and what he didn't know was that Kubrick was taking the highest performance mm. possible, the most histrionic. Uh, and some people really don't like it because it's so histrionic. Uh, and say, like Pauline Kael, the famous critic, Kubrick cannot direct human beings. He's not interested in human beings. And the performances are really exaggerated and extreme because he's forgotten about the human touch. And I can kind of see that uh, sometimes in, in some of his films. Yeah, and there's something that Jack Nicholson kind of took with him through. Because yes. I watched, just just before watching The Shining, a couple of days ago, I watched The Passenger. Um, and that's the other end yeah. of, of uh, right. <laughs> expressiveness. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it's so yeah. small. His performance is so small and yeah. intimate. Yeah. Um, and that's Antonioni, <laughs> yeah. and Antonioni is all about blankness and flatness and lack of affect. That if you watch, um, I think Nicholson's best performances in Five Easy Pieces, that is also quite high. You know, it's Bob Raffleson's so a quite uh, kind of very histrionic, very funny performance. Um, but it's quite similar to this. But you're right in a sense that I think in the eighties, Nicholson was kind of ruined by The Shining because just everything was amped, really mm -hmm. highly amped up. Uh, and he needed to calm down or get older, I think, to, to kind of get back into a different yeah. kind of groove. Yeah, thank you very much. Right, I'm good enough going to um, be the only one speaking. So do any of you have any questions, anything you'd like to even just uh, remarks, comments? I can see one in the I middle. I can see one. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing about the book is that this very normal, humane guy yeah. gets to the level of just being a complete maniac through a period of time and through the association with the hotel yeah. and Jack had already done one flew over Cuckoo's Nest so basically Stephen King was like well people are already going to see him as a maniac yeah. so it's, it's, it's not going to be a surprise yeah. instead of starting at zero he's starting at four or five yeah that's right
exactly. Yeah, yeah. Turn it up to eleven. That's right. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I think. Well, there are many reasons why he, why he hated it. Not least because, I mean, I, I love Kubrick's just disdainful attitude to script writing. It's like any idiot can do script writing. You just need eight blocks of narrative. That's basically it, uh, and you just kind of bolt them together. Uh, and he got he he brought in Diane Johnson instead. He had written a re- she is a professor of Gothic studies actually, uh, but she'd written a couple of really interesting novels from the female point of view of maybe being stalked. It's quite they're quite interesting novels. Uh, so he obviously picked up on her, and they just bounced it around quite quickly. And he was he was not interested. He was literally tore out pages from the novel as he went through, saying irrelevant, irrelevant, irrelevant. But you're right because you know it's just an in, Jack Torrance is just an enigma in this film um, and we sort of get a little bit of backfill but not very much um, and in the book he is someone who is really struggling with alcoholism uh, he's messed up because he was a teacher uh, he had one novel out he was a successful teacher he was started drinking he couldn't write uh, he hit a student he hit his own you know so he's in a really kind of desperate state and actually what the what the hotel does is slowly um, eke away at his um, at his weaknesses and then provides and feeds him with information slowly um, so there's, there's one thing um, that's really enigmatic that, that gets conspiracy theorists quite interested in this which is that if you watch very closely as he's typing he's got a huge book next to him open of cutting mm-hmm. so if you saw that uh, which is a really lovingly made prop, actually. It's full of really relevant stories. It's in the Kubrick archive in, um, down in, um, in the University of the Arts. Um, uh, they'll let you in. They wouldn't let me in, but they'll let you in. Um, I was writing a rival book, so they wouldn't let me in. Um, but, uh, so so that, that is in the book. So it's the prop of the history of the Overlook Hotel, which is just full of atrocity. Uh, so mafia murders... There's a suicide in room 237, which sort of makes sense of, of what's going on in that room. Um, the, the woman who, who commits suicide in, in, in the room is the nastiest ghost of the whole lot. Um, and, and he's fed this sort of stuff in the basement where all of the history of the, of the Overlook is. And it's in the basement, the metaphorical basement, where you get the full backstory of Jack Torrance, who was abused by his father, physically abused by his father, so beaten, and his mother was beaten. And what you've got here in the 70s is one of the first novels about cycles of familial abuse. It's really quite a remarkable book, actually, for that, really ahead of its time. But that was just being thought through um, by um, feminist thinkers in the 70s. You know, this idea that there might be intra-familial abuse did not really be able to be spoken until the 70s so Stephen King is right there right on time Kubrick has no interest in that at all <laughs> so you know Jack Jack does as you say become this kind of just he's he's an enigma he's a cipher he's a minotaur he's the he's the monster at the centre of the maze and thank you for the question yeah, anyone else question. Just ask about the red elevator yes oh, the red elevator no. yes yeah was that was that in the novel or was that well, I mean, what that indicates to you is the other thing that's totally different from the book to the film is that we've talked about um, Kubrick being interested in the glide, right? So this, this film is endlessly horizontal. It's all about gliding movement uh, around on a, on, on a flat surface, following Danny around, going through the kitchen. 
you'll notice that he does jump cuts in the third tricycle movement of um, of Danny because at some point he has to go up the stairs to get high to see the Brady sisters but you don't oh. see that it's just on the flat so it, it's all about that whereas the book the most haunted place in the book is the elevator and that goes up and down it's all about verticality and you're in the basement where the where the thing is going to blow where the boiler is going to blow and how does Danny win in the book he takes his dad up to the highest point of the, of the on the fifth floor farthest away from the boiler so that the place will blow uh, so it's all about height and, and verticality up and down whereas the film is about mm. horizontality uh, and that's what I think is very different on that and I think that's also why why King hates it <laughs> it's a good question though uh, but I, I mean, the, one of the key things about the red elevator is that it's there. F- it was there principally, and you notice Wendy sees it. I don't, you know, Danny, yeah, Danny sees right. it, but Wendy sees it in the end. But is th- that was the that was the ad? That was the teaser ad. Six months before the film came out, it was just the elevator, blood pouring out of the elevator, mm. the end. Um, and it, it's 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 there for the advert, and I think that's quite uh, quite influential as well. So just before we watched this film, we saw the trailer to Tar. <laughs> All of those images, about half of those images aren't in the film, in the trailer. I was really bemused. I saw Tar yesterday, just thinking, where's the trailer? <laughs> uh, it's, it's loads of images in there that don't make it to the film. They're teasers. And mm. I think that's also a kind of Kubrick echo, actually. Yeah, yeah, part of the marketing. Of the yeah. Shout out. The we can't really see we, you because yeah. we're, we're in the haze <laughs> the of light. Spotlight. Yeah. Use of the N word quite jarring. I wonder if there's much of a commentary on why that was included. Yeah, so, I mean, you can do this in 1980. You can't do this now, uh, I think. Um, so, so there, there is, I think there's, there's something to say about 1921. Uh, the final kind of scene in, is, is 1921. In, in the 1919, 1920, 1921, that's when you get the height of... Uh, it's, the, it's the re-emergence of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, it's the emergence of white power, of nativism. All that stuff, make America great again, is 1920s fascism. Plain and simple. It's a really kind of straight transfer. So Sarah Churchwell's written a whole book about this, about how um, the Trump stuff was echoing um, nativism in the 20s. And if you know anything about H.P. Lovecraft... You know, he's a pathological racist writing in the 20s about this sort of stuff. Um, so so what is being tempted out of uh, Jack Torrance is a kind of let's appeal. It's like in the toilet scene when um, Grady is saying, you know, I, I, I think there is this N-word who's, who's bringing in uh, someone from the outside. It's, it's, it, you can see, I think it's a great kind of response from Nicholson, who's kind of looks giggly and sort of, oh, wow, he said that word. And are we allowed to say that word? And, and I, I'm going to join you because I'm, I'm feeling at my lowest point, weak point here. Uh, and it's, it, that's really emphasised in the book, uh, is that the, this, is, this is a place that's dripping with racism, with historical violence, with uh, violence towards women, uh, it's a very unfortunately homophobic book, actually, because it's, it's it's got lots of kind of you know um, the, the the general manager in the book is is a gay man, openly gay man, and Jack Torrance really loathes this kind of uh, figure. But it's just it's relying on all of your weaknesses, I think. So that's kind of why it's there, and why it's, it's almost like a hook to bring him in, to make him complicit, and maybe to make us complicit as well. 
Um, but you cannot do that now. I don't think you could in 1980. Mm. Well, really is a problem. I think there's there's a there's a problem in um, in how uh, Kubrick thinks about the role of the cook. Actually, I do, I do think that. So there was a there was a very famous essay that was written by um, an African American science fiction writer. He said that I've just I've just realised this that Stephen King uses the trope of what he, he calls the magical Negro, that is the, the helper figure, uh, who, who, is the, who is the African-American who um, aids the white hero to achieve their success, usually at the expense of their own sacrifice. Right? So this is exactly what happens to Halloran in the film. Mm. Uh, all of that effort to get all that, that distance to get uh, you know, uh, an axe in the chest, it's not what happens in the book. Halloran is the surrogate father in the book. At the end, you get this this kind of new family being being constructed around um, Wendy and Danny and Halloran as this not not sexual partner, but as this kind of paternal, benign paternal figure who's looking after them safely in Miami. They and and you can reconstruct a kind of form of family at the end of this. So I think there are problematic representations around um Haller and the cook in the in the film but i think it's uh, i do think it's working in context quite well that scene when jack nicholson is being kind of be complicit with me be racist with me i think it's it, it works effectively it's just the, the 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 culture has shifted you just can't do that now well, i had a question in fact i'd read the book ages ago yeah and i was wondering why why the choice to kill the cook? It, it, it shifts the story along, doesn't it? It makes it a completely different... It tells a different story altogether. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was ever written about or explained. Not, or... Uh, not really. I mean, I think people have begun to start writing... Um, I mean, just recently, the last few, last three or four years, there have been really strong books that have come out uh, on the African-American uh, presence in uh, American horror right the way back to the 19th century. Uh, and they are beginning to kind of resituate things like this uh, all the time. So, you know, but there is, a, there, there is an issue that they have with not just The Shining, but with King in general, uh, Green Mile and, and, and uh, Shawshank Redemption and all these sorts of things that, that does use a trope again and again. Uh, and um, nevertheless, I think people can... can, can use that tradition, occupy it, and turn it into something else. So the best example of that is H.P. Lovecraft is a disastrous, racist, uh, pathological kind of figure. He's one of his biggest fans writing at the moment, an African-American writer called Victor Laval, uh, who has simply appropriated uh, those tropes and rewritten them, sometimes explicitly, uh, in order to put in a, a different perspective. Uh, so I can't recommend... recommend um, Victor Laval's novels uh, highly enough. They were absolutely um, superb for that kind of sense mm. of rewriting this racist tradition. Oh, thank you. you. Have any other questions? Yeah, go for it. Sorry, I was really interested by what you said about uh, what Stanley Kubrick chose not to include. Yeah. From the book specifically about Jack's mental health. Right. Um, and I think particularly in the last few years, I've noticed so many films touching on the subjects of like mental health and things like abuse and whatnot and trauma in, in yeah. many different ways. I was wondering if you perhaps they were 
anybody for that conversation in pop culture, at least in the seventies and eighties, in the way that they are now. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thought. I think I think that's right. So I think this is. Um, I mean, I've I've done work on the history of how the idea of of, of sexual trauma or of, of traumatic history begins to emerge in in the American culture. And it really is quite late. So it's, it's late 60s that people are starting to talk about um, battered child syndrome. And they, there's a real kind of fight to get this recognised because, you know, doctors in the A&E are seeing parents bring in children with broken arms or broken legs. And it's like it's not even in the system to think, who did this to you? Or, you know, the, the story that, oh, I just fell over is kind of accepted. But with the feminist movements in the 70s, early 70s, you're beginning to get people who are saying, well, actually, you know, this is happening perhaps more than we can conceive. And what you get in the 70s through, I think, this is what horror is good at. It provides you with a series of metaphors or a series of tropes. Um, so damaged children are quite in the 70s are quite often have psychic powers, right? particularly in Stephen King novels, but, but elsewhere as well. Um, you know, something like The Fury... Uh, is, is Brian De Palma's The Fury. Brian De Palma hated The Shining as well. Um, what does he know about horror? <laughs> uh, I made Carrie. Uh, that stuff. Um, you, the, there is the beginning of this sort of sense of the traumatised child and, and the child who's an object of, of maybe a, a really bad family dynamic is beginning to emerge. So, you know, The Shining comes out roughly the same time as Kramer versus Kramer very different kind of register but it's all focused on the damage that's being done to the child of that divorce uh, and you're beginning to get the, the, the sense of, of, of children being this kind of you know problem object anxious object uh, sometimes demonized um, Damien in the Owen uh, in the Omen series um, you know this kind of monstrous child or, or the brood you know Cronenberg stuff um, there, there's a lot of kind of demon children obviously um, but there's also a sort of sense in which that's working through what horrors lie in the figure of the child. And then it's the 80s that you begin to get really, um, really much more discussion in the wider culture about what if sexual abuse was not just vanishingly rare and done by strangers, uh, but was actually structural to the nuclear family in certain societies. And that sort of that 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 confrontational kind of position uh, so that by the end of the 80s you've got um, some psychiatrists arguing 10 or 20 percent of American children have suffered some form of sexual abuse uh, and then it, it kind of ramps down a little bit and then ramps up and you know according to certain panels uh, so there's there's something I think about The Shining which is like um, emergent it's just beginning to articulate this and I think Danny is a fantastic figure for thinking about that psychic child as a kind of figure of trauma in the culture. It's a really interesting angle. Actually, I'm going to piggyback on that mm. query about mental health. Is there other interpretations of the film, and I hesitate to say off mm. the book as well, but really off the film, um, that question the events portrayed in the film according to the different points of view? So is there a version in which perhaps none of this happened? Right. Um, they, especially with the ending where they don't find his body, mm. uh, can we trust these narrators? Mm. Uh, what actually happened behind closed doors? Yeah, yeah. So that's a that, that's a really good question, and the, and there was there, there was this discussion because of course the best the best kind of um, gothic 
um, texts put you in a place of hesitation so you're not sure and it's usually between natural and supernatural explanations mm. or in this case is the is the haunting literal or is it metaphorical and i think for most of that film you can say there is no point at which um danny isn't maybe you know hallucinating or indeed jack torrance isn't just hallucinating and in fact he must be sort of hallucinating um the barman at a certain point uh, and yet all of that discussion hinges on who opens the door then when he's locked away how does yeah. the door open and an unbelievable amount of, of, of print on, you know, that is the objective moment when this turns supernatural. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a kind of, you know, it's a rationalist approach, which is trying to prove something irrational, actually. It's really weird. Um, and, and I'm much more relaxed about this. That it clearly is a kind of metaphorical kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and all of these kind of psychic uh, uh, elements are about familial trauma I think there's just one thing maybe to add to to kind of open this out which is that I think Stephen King became aware of the problem of the of the sexual dynamics of this so he he paid penance by writing Dolores Claiborne uh, and also Gerald's Game which has a fantastic adaptation by Mike Flanagan I'd really recommend mm -hmm. and that's focused entirely on women uh, and women who um, have to overcome a timid, abusive position uh, in order to kind of find themselves in effect. So you might know the premise of Gerald's, Gerald's Game, which is that this is a woman who is um, submitting to a sadomasochistic sex game with her husband. So she's um, padlocked to a bed and her, she kicks out her husband in a kind of, you know, aggressive sort of, I've had enough of this, and he dies and she's left tied to a bed for 450 pages of the book. And the only way she's going to get out of that scenario is if she confronts her memories of childhood abuse from her father, uh, because inside that memory is a clue about how to get out of your uh, handcuffs. So, so, And she does, and therefore kind of reaches a kind of point of, you know, finding her subjectivity again. And it really weirdly maps across to the parallel book, Dolores Claiborne. Uh, which has uh, a similar story of a woman that's happening at the same time, mm. just somewhere nearby. Uh, and they've both been filmed in really interesting ways. So I think there's a kind of sense in which maybe this tells you something about the time as well, which is that, you know, the, the, this is very 70s. It's very, you know, the new American cinema is mostly quite masculine and macho and violent and uh, hell-raising in various kinds of ways. Uh, and then you get a kind of reversion of it or a revision of it that happens 20 years later. And it's 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 King. Why King? We keep reading him, um, even if he himself calls it addictive. Um, is because I think he just surfs the zeitgeist so well all the time. So his shift of subjectivity about familial abuse from the male focus to the female focus in the nineties is bang on time. It's uncannily on time, uh, as if he's the echo chamber of post-war American culture. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to end it on. So, really interesting insight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. Thanks Thank for Thank you, everyone, staying. for staying and listening yeah. in and taking part. Yeah. Um, hope you've had a lovely evening and um, safe trip home. Yeah.